Genesis chapter 2, Genesis chapter 2, I'd like to read verses 18 through 25. And the title of the sermon asks, should you try to find a spouse? And the short answer is yes. For the vast majority of people throughout history. But it's a yes with a lot of cautions and conditions. And more on that in a moment. For now, I'd like to read this and pray. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a suitor found a suitable helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let us pray. Lord, I ask that you would attend to us, that we would grow in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, should you try to find a spouse? In verse 18, Moses tells us God's thought about Adam's situation. God thought and spoke, saying it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. What does it mean that God did not think it good that the man should be alone? The word good here is the Hebrew word tob. Tob. And tob hasn't to do, it doesn't have to do with right and wrong. Or might I say sin and righteousness. Being alone is not sinful. The good that is lacking is more of a good, better, best thing. When he says it is not good that the man should be alone, it means that it's not pleasant that man is alone. It is not agreeable. And God determined to improve the situation. Adam was sufficient as a man. 
He was good. He was made in, in the image of God all by himself, without Eve. And as an individual, Adam could already fulfill his primary duty, his primary duty, which is the same duty for all, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But there were other needs, other duties, that Adam or a man by himself would not succeed at without help. Indeed, he needed someone fit for him. And that phrase, fit for him, is mentioned twice in this portion of the text, in verse 18 and in verse 20. Some translations will use the phrase suitable for him instead of fit for him. The Hebrew word fit means in front of or in sight of and opposite to. The English Methodist theologian Joseph Benson comments, though there was an upper world of angels and lower world of brutes, yet there being none of the same rank of beings with himself, referring to Adam, he might be truly said to be alone. It is not good. It was neither good for man's comfort, who was formed for society and not for solitude. Nor was it good for the accomplishment of God's purpose in the increase of mankind. Yes, God wanted more than just Adam. So he acted upon this not good situation and established an institution, a covenantal arrangement. He added something to creation to make things better. For man to accomplish these other duties and experience an, inter, an intimate relationship beyond singleness, Adam would need Eve, his helper, woman. Also made in the image of God, she would become Adam's wife, the mother of Cain and Abel and Seth, and more, Eve was made to labor beside Adam as from out of his rib, and she would share with him mankind's dominion task. Man and woman, ish, man and isha, woman, both image bearers of God, ruling under him and over the work of his hands together. Now that is good. God did not fit Eve, fit Eve to act as an independent agent. Men and women are not designed to function like cold marbles rolling around bumping off each other. The fitting, the fitting was meant to put them together in work and play and worship and most all things. 
as to men and women, consider even their anatomy. Eve came with all the right equipment for Adam to combine with her, to enjoy intimacy and the potential to produce offspring. Verses 22 and 23 shows us that God brought her to Adam and he, and he sang. Cornelis Vanderwall writes, He received her with a song. Thus, the first song in the Bible is a husband's song of delight in his bride. And it was not, bless your beautiful hide, from the seven brides for seven brothers. It was this song. And I won't sing it. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Following that song, Moses adds something. He adds a therefore. It is his inspired commentary on what God just did when he created woman. When he created woman, he created a marriage covenant. Moses says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is a description for the creation of a a household. You leave father and mother, you hold fast to your wife. It is God's prescription for marriage and its consummation And really, the fullest expression of oneness that can exist between a man and a woman. Mm, You're right. You're right if you're thinking, I've, I've seen many examples of husbands and wives that fail to express such a oneness. Yes. But I suggest you think of it this way. Though an orange is a delicious piece of fruit, if you do not tend to it, but leave it lay outside on the ground, eventually the sun and ants and maybe mold will turn it into something you would not want to eat. And so it is with some who grow up in homes with parents who are not one as they should be. With marriage, you have to prayerfully tend it. Fighting, grudge-holding, disloyalty, those things are easy. They come natural to sinners. They make a man and wife not want to work together. Seriously, every couple disagrees and argues over things. Expect that. Married people need God's help, as do all creatures. I wonder, as as pressures mount in a home and the wife no longer wants to fit the man or the man mistreats her and pushes her aside, how possible is it that that child would grow up in the household looking forward to having a spouse of their own. It could be the last thing that they would want. 
Or if a child maybe hopes just to escape from such a household by finding a spouse and having her or him take her away. But when you're raised in such a home and you marry, there are manners and habits that you now have to untangle and figure out and change. Nonetheless, God gave us marriage to make something that was not good, good. Marriage is not, a, not bad, but good. Furthermore, I suggest to you that the longer a marriage lasts in the Lord, big qualifier, in the Lord, it becomes, it becomes increasingly stronger and fulfilling. In Matthew 19, it's worth turning to this. Matthew 19, if you have your Bible there, beginning in verse 3. And Pharisees came up to him, speaking of Jesus, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read? that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So what did he do? He looked at Genesis 2, Jesus did, when he was questioned about divorce. And as I said last time, Scripture is sufficient for answering life's questions when it comes to the things God requires of us. Jesus warns that when a couple marries, they are no longer two, but one. And that if God has joined them together in matrimony, no one had better break that covenant. Jesus emphasized to his divorce-ready culture, and I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. It was tough for them to hear these words, even the disciples, no divorce. They had grown accustomed to the idea of divorce when your marriage becomes too unpleasant. The disciples said to him in Matthew 19.10 there, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. What are the disciples saying? John Gill suggests the disciples were drawing the conclusion it would be more expedient and advisable for a man to live always a single life 
than run the risk of marrying a woman that may prove very disagreeable and uncomfortable, to whom he must be bound all the days of his or her life, and in such a case not be able to relieve and extricate himself? It would be better not to marry. This, adds Gill, they said under the prejudice the prejudice of national law and custom, which greatly prevailed and under the influence of a carnal heart. But when they said that, it'd be better not to marry. Here's how Jesus replied to them in verse 11. Jesus said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. So when they're saying it's better that we not get married, Jesus considered his disciples' conclusion unrealistic, untenable. And the reason, sorry, and the reason he gives is that most people, most people are not designed to be single. Most people are not designed to be single. Jesus uses the term eunuch here. I won't get too graphic about that. But eunuch describes a male who is without impulse, let's say, that that would lead him to want to be married. There's no desire in a eunuch for sexual union. The person is not distracted or steered by such desires. They have no need of it. And the Lord here describes there are three categories for which someone might be a eunuch. Number one, the first kind God just made that way. It's their natural constitution not to be interested in the opposite sex sexually. The second kind became a eunuch because he was turned into one by the violence of men or scalpel. The final kind, Jesus said, made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. This eunuch is is determined to be one by choice. And not that he physically became a eunuch, but that he did intentionally, motivationally become a eunuch. Willing to withstand his or her, as we'll see later, willing to withstand his natural inclination by the help of God, in order to be devoted, undistracted to the heavenly kingdom. There's your third eunuch. And this is perhaps the the Apostle Paul's chosen lifestyle, to be this kind of person. And the reason I say this is based upon the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 7. Huge chapter if you're going to consider marriage and sex and all related things. Paul says in verse 8, to the unmarried 
and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And so here, Paul, he names widows, women. Two, they are able to name themselves in this group that decide to refrain from marriage for the sake of God's kingdom. They, They can commit to singleness for heavenly reasons. Paul says it's a gift. However, just one verse earlier, in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 7, he wrote, I wish that all were as, my, as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So neither James, I should say, neither Jesus nor Paul were turning Genesis 2 upside down. It's, it's good that men not be alone. It's, it's good to be married. They agreed. It's what God wanted and wants for his creation. But there are exceptions. And those single men and women are highly effective and blessed by the Lord who created them with the gift to fly solo like Paul. Such a person is hardly sinning by refusing marriage. On the contrary, God has given them a gift you may not have. I don't have. He has suited them for singleness. And you there, who are not driven by an unsatisfied need to be with a woman or a man, a lifelong spouse, you will not make yourself better for God's purposes by marrying. Because he designed you to accomplish tasks for which only your singleness will be a match. Now for those without the gift... Should you try to find a spouse? I think so. I think so. But when, how, what does trying even look like? We're getting there. To start, though, I warn you, don't get married just to get married. Such eagerness to be married can make life worse for you. Not that your happiness is what matters, but what I'm suggesting is that you could get yourself married to someone who has no interest in the kingdom of God. He or she may actually oppose your love and obedience to Jesus Christ. Where are you then? Once you've saddled that horse, heaven forbid, it would be better that you never married. You went and got the hots for some guy or gal, but now you're cuffed to them in an unbreakable covenant. You can understand now why the disciples might have concluded it's better not to marry. 
Marriage is the second most important decision you will ever make after choosing to follow Jesus Christ. It stands to reason you should invest time and effort into the prospects. You must evaluate. And in a decadent culture, the choices for godly suitors are slim. Prayer must play a part, and a good handful of counselors might help as well. But don't settle. Proceed, though, with caution. Still proceed. It's a terrible predicament to find yourself married to someone who does not love God. He or she remains your spouse, but it's a seed of the serpent, and you are not. Though your spouse pretended to be a worshiper of God, maybe pretending until he put a ring on your finger, but then he held tight to his autonomy, his selfishness, his self-rule the entire time, and it spilled out from day one. And now you're stuck with what Jesus warned. Your enemy is a member of your own household. You are to blame for this, partially at least. And I fear that that arrangement could explain why some of you have grown up in households rife with division. What drives people to get married? Sex. That isn't complete, right? And it doesn't sound godly and wholesome, necessarily. I don't know why not. But God has made sex a huge motivator for marriage. If you doubt its role, read 1 Corinthians 7. You mustn't belittle the importance of sex. It's why I fear there is a lack of commitment to marriage today because young men and women feel they can have that without the covenant. Here's an analogy. Came to me last night, texting it into my phone as a reminder. Made the sermon two pages longer. Abby asked me, boy, it must be really long if you're still up there working on this last minute. You're going to be Bob's record. I said, well. God gives us, I think he gives all of us, this wedding present in advance. This is a metaphor, right? He gives us this wedding present in advance and says, don't open that until you make a covenant before me with your spouse. No opening that gift. And so we're carrying the res- this present around with us all the time. Like from a very young age even. Waiting to open it with our bride or our groom someday. And the thing is, sexual liberation and impure motives on the part of everyone, 
taught us to open the present anytime you want. And with almost anyone you care to open it with. And then our younger children who would never dream of doing such a thing as that, until they were married, because they're young children, they still have their present carrying it around thinking, boy, someday I'm probably going to open this present. And the older they get, the more curious they are about opening the present. And they're tempted to untie the bow at least and just take a peek inside, close it up. Take another peek inside, close it up. Even that, children, parents of children, can foul things up, bring a lot of guilt. Because Jesus said, even to look on a woman with lust in your heart is forbidden. I'm not going to expand any more on that, parents. You can be at ease. Hopefully you can connect the dots so you can do so at home and your leisure. So here you are, you love God, you wish to be married someday. What kind of person do you hope to find in a spouse? You don't want a pretender. And so you will need to get to know the person a bit, I think. You will need to see him in certain situations. You will need to talk with her about important things. The person's character should be your primary concern. And you're ready to do all that, all right? You're willing to do more than all, all of that, to find the right one. Just a quick warning. The right one's not perfect. Ask Tracy. She will not check off all the boxes. He is a sinner, a schlep at times. And when you first start meeting people and you're in the internal interview process where you're just trying to get your feeling about the person, everyone can look good on paper. Everyone. But at some point in your marriage, you're going to open your eyes after you've made that covenant. And on the pillow next to you, I've told this to people I've counseled, There's a drooling woman with messed up hair, snoring at you with breath that... And she doesn't awaken with a smile and sunshine, necessarily. It's then when you tell yourself, what God has joined together, let no man separate. And you will have to learn to love that person. And that takes time and, and error and trial. But nevertheless, I'm still with her. Back to your pursuit of a good spouse, a good thing. What might it look like? Is there etiquette to follow? I think so. What social environments might help you to discover Mr. Right or Mrs. Right? Or can you just wait and trip over them like someone in a comedy romance? Is that how it's supposed to work? Maybe you think that you will defer to God. No, his providential care is all that matters. 
after all, it's not like you don't have other things to do in your day. But I wonder, is it biblical that he wants to impose a spouse as if by magic? I will tell you this. God will not be tested. We know this. If you present your desire for a spouse to him, but then keep yourself from ever looking or avoid every potential social setting that might assist in finding Mrs. Wright, what do you expect from God? That would be like praying for your bills to get paid but not going to work. It would be like praying for the gospel to go forth, but then hiding your light under a bushel. You cannot expect to hide in a cave or your mother's basement and say, if God wants me to be married, he will cause the right woman to appear right in the cave where I've hidden. That is not how God normally works. I'm one to a fault, probably. I'm one to a fault, I'm sure. Who fancies the idea of a matchmaker service? Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match. That whole thing. I like that idea. Or family members praying and thinking of potential mates or attending single people's groups or just groups in general general where Christian people might be there to get to know each other. First as friends, I, I agree. I like pastors knowing other pastors from other churches and floating potentials back and forth. I'm that guy. I like brothers and sisters and parents and grandparents being involved in the lives of their single family members and on the lookout for the perfect fit. I feel like if you allow me to, then I'll start looking around for you, young men, young ladies. Not to come up with just someone, but a good one. And guess what? None of those things are necessarily wrong. But your attitude, my attitude, toward the single person, it can be inappropriate. I made this mistake. First, we can't presume that every single person wants to get married. Or maybe the timing is bad. Whatever, I think a simple conversation can clear that up, and that's fine. Secondly, though, people are not slabs of meat under glass at the butcher shop. You shouldn't take the approach to, every cut of steak grills the same. I know a guy. I know a gal. Here are some biblical examples of men, right, in this case, trying to find a wife. And yes, they're narratives. They're narratives, narratives, and we cannot draw imperatives from them, but neither should we determine our initiative or conduct based upon the narrative that we've made of our own or that 
our favorite Disney movie made for us. Whatever. Number one, God takes, what, a rib from Adam, makes him a wife. That's as close as, close as you get to magic, friends. The man didn't even need to go out looking. He went to sleep, and there she is. So much for my cave analogy. Two, Father Abraham sends a servant in Genesis 24 to get a wife for his son from his own people in Mesopotamia, rather than Isaac should marry a Canaanite woman, which was the people he was living around. The servant, he takes ten camels and men and departs. Investment. He takes all sorts of choice gifts from Abraham to the city of Nahor. There he finds a young woman, very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. That's good for starters. Her na- not essential, that's good for starters. Her name is Rebecca, and she was from Abraham's clan. The servant had covenanted with Abraham to attempt to find a wife for Isaac. He was prayerful. He journeyed to a faraway land. He brought precious gifts. He sets up a little test. Okay, maybe he's putting out the fleece somewhat to discern God's hand is with him. Rebecca is a young woman who passes the test, and she is a relative. Then the servant puts a ring on her nose and bracelets on her arms. He bows and worships God for leading him by the right way. After the servant shares all that God has done for Abraham and Isaac with her family, Rebecca's father and brother agree to the arranged marriage. And Rebecca agrees too. Important. And she leaves with her nurse and goes with Abraham's servant and his men. Isaac. I'm thinking Isaac is praying and hoping himself. In Genesis 24, and Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. So she took her veil and covered herself, and the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. Number three, it's the same with Rebekah. Later, okay, as an older woman, she says to her aged husband, Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob, her son, marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Jacob was one of the twins born to Rebekah, Jacob and Esau. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham 
to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram, to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now, all that seems to me like an awful lot of parental involvement. Maybe too much. Yet I suggest that your parents could very well have best intentions for you. Not always. But maybe leave some room for them, girls and boys, men and women. Also, both Isaac and Jacob are examples of pursuing a spouse from your own kin or circles or origins. That's a good idea much of the time as well. They avoided people around them that were hostile to God. That's imperative. And they traveled to find better fits. So maybe you don't go looking for Mr. Right in the bars or among the general masses going to a university you're attending. It might not be helpful to fall for someone at work either. That would depend on what kind of people you work with there. I can tell you this. You have to meet someone somewhere. That's how this works. You have to find the person. Which I know it sounds like all of a sudden I'm out on the hunt. Or maybe I'm desperate for food. And I don't think it needs to sound that way. Still, you had to be introduced or come into contact or whatever. All of the ways have finding as part of the description. Moses found his at a well. Jacob eventually found the one he wanted and had to work for her and was coerced to take a sister first. You should try to find a spouse. There is intentionality and planning and investment involved of wealth even and of time. I suggest you consider the church or gatherings or get-togethers or a school where Christians can interface. That might be similar to leaving Canaan, to going to Mesopotamia. I don't think it's a bad idea to set these groups up to foster repeated interaction. Not meaningless dating, but just repeated interaction, discussions. You don't have to marry the first opposite sex person you meet. You don't have to marry at all. Unless, of course, unless, of course, you intend to open that wedding present from God. Then you need to be married. I suppose if you want to be contrarian then do what Jacob's brother did. Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. 
So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. And what, what's that? Marriage to spite your parents? That's, that's a huge and evil error. Your motive is, is, is likely to be cursed by God, not blessed by him. Look, these are examples given to us, and there are not a ton of them. We can say confidently that you should not be unequally yoked with a non-believer, as I mentioned a bit ago. What have you saddled yourself to then? Yet some have made the mistake, and Paul advises them, if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. What should you be looking for? Someone who professes to love God as his or her primary duty. That would be first. Secondly, it would probably help if the person shared many of your upfront theological commitments. You might find it difficult, though not impossible, okay, hear that. You might find it difficult to marry a Roman Catholic person of that persuasion, or a charismatic one, or a fundamentalist Baptist kind, if you're from the Reformed persuasion. Thirdly, the person's life should match what the person says he believes. We all live inconsistent, yes, with what we say we believe. It just shouldn't be severe. Fourthly, the treat of marriage is oneness. Not simply sexual intimacy, but in life. So you're looking for someone who wants to create a household with children, Lord willing, all serving his kingdom purposes in the earth. Also, it helps if the person will get along okay with your family. Though it will not always work, as Jesus warned how the members of your own household could be your enemies, you are not ultimately marrying your in-laws. But it will feel like that on some occasions. So if God gave us something that was better than good, if he gave us something wrought in heaven, I say we embrace it, we pursue it, and you try to find a spouse. Let's pray. Lord, um, this uh, does not an exhaustive teaching on marriage and all that goes into it. But more of an importance of the decision and the pursuit to do it right, to find the right one. I understand, Lord, how thoroughly frustrating that might be at times in this culture. I pray that we, your people, 
change in such a matter or become the kind of people who see the beauty of what you've given us and pursue it. And that other churches in the surrounding area would do the same. In Jesus' name.